Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. The weekend brought a military strike in Syria, breaking news about Michael Cohen, and a bombshell interview with James Comey. We discuss the week's news and talk with David Singleton, executive director of the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are about to hit the road this week. We will be hosting a live podcast, and it's open to the public in Williamsburg. You can check out all the information on our social media channels. We will also be hosting a meetup Thursday night in Arlington, Virginia. We'll be sharing the details about that on our social media as well. And speaking of social media, we are really trying to increase our presence on Instagram. So if you're on Instagram, follow us at Pantsuit Politics. Sarah, have you checked in with our friend James Comey lately? I have. And you know what? I'm here for it. I'm here for James Comey, all of it. The book, the press, the he's out of cares to give on all the things. You know, I just it's not even that I agree with everything he says. I'm just here for his sort of wide open presence. I don't know how to describe it any other way. Well, I'll tell you that I'm struggling a little bit. A lot of what he says. So I'm a huge James Comey fan. I know you love him. And I think I love him in part because I feel like when everybody's mad at you and you're in law enforcement, you're probably doing your job. And James Comey has seriously angered people of all stripes. And so Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of empathy for him. And I think that that speaks to someone who is trying to act on principle. I just wish that, you know, I've seen the excerpts from the book that have been floating around and some of them are really petty. 
it just tarnishes mm. his star a little bit for me, how how petty some of it is. That said, his George Stephanopoulos interview, I really admired a lot of what he said and agree with it. I thought that his comments about the president's impeachment were spot on, where he said that impeachment would be like giving the American public a pass on work that we should have to do as a public to say that this is a person who's unfit for office. So I, I don't know. That was the part that know. was the part I didn't like. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> like I thought here's what bugged me about that. When he was like, Well, you know, the, the American public needs to own what they did basically electorally. I'm like, we didn't do that. He lost the public vote. The American public didn't do anything electorally. It was electoral college. And so I that to me tarnishes sort of like what he's trying the point he's trying to make. Like if Donald Trump had blown out the popular vote, then yes, I get the point he's trying to make. And like in order to own someone who's unfit for president, like, don't, shouldn't we, if someone's unfit for pres- to be the president, we just hang out till there's another election? Like, no. I mean, impeachment is the process that triggers the, that should be triggered if someone is unfit. I mean, and that was the big, that's the big soundbite, right? He said he was morally unfit to be president. And not medically unfit, which was another big soundbite. And that was another place. I mean, he's doing, he continues to do things that just, it doesn't feed everyone's wish list, right? And and I admire that about him. I think the reality is electorally, for better or worse, 2018 is going to be a referendum on this president. Mm-hmm. And who we put in Congress probably has as much to do with whether we believe that he should continue to be president as it has to do with Congress. And so that's where I would have added, if I were him, a footnote saying, now there is an opportunity electorally to express our views on this in mm. 2018. And maybe that's what he did. I mean, it was a five-hour interview, so right. there's more to it. It's just, you know, it's just the only thing that I kind of struggle with is, you know, everything says, every every reporting is like, well, this is for his book. This is for his book tour. And so, it, it you know, the undercurrent is this is very opportunistic, but you know, I think both things can be true. I think James Comey feels strongly that, you know, he played a role in putting this person in the White House that is he was morally unfit to do the job and who is bad at the job. I think he I think he carries some what he feels, even if it's not necessarily responsibility for putting them there, like being unable to sort of stop the train once it was there, witnessing it up close and personal, seeing what a what a disaster he is and not being able to do anything about it. Like, I think that that he you feel the sort of moral imperative, whether you just whether you agree with it or not, you feel it coming from him. Right. You feel the moral imperative he feels. And also that, yeah, he's also trying to sell a book. I'm not mad at him for trying to sell a book. He's got he got fired, man. Like so he's got to pay his bill some way. And, you know, but it, it just I don't want to use the word tarnish. That's a little stronger than I feel. But I hate that that has to it has to be a part of this sort of opportunistic book deal narrative. Side note, NPR this morning was reporting on the James Comey book and interview. And they said they said, you know, people of both sides are upset. And then they said Donald Trump tweeted about it, which. Every time I think his tweets can't get. Like more over-the-top dramatic, he somehow finds a way. Like, you are president of the United States. Those tweets he was sending about James Comey are embarrassing. But anyway, and they said, and also, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. And I thought, you know what? I really like that NPR. I really like that, like, we are just going to describe this man as what he is, not radio host, not conservative 
personality conspiracy theorist. I would like everyone to adopt that descriptor for Alex Jones. I thought that was really awesome. Well, I could spend a lot of time talking about James Comey for a lot of reasons, but we also had a really important foreign policy decision made late Friday evening when the president ordered military strikes in connection with the UK and France in Syria. And honestly, this, like James Comey, is another thing that I just don't know how to feel about it. I feel fine, mainly just because this is in conjunction with France and Britain. And like, clearly, I feel fine about their involvement. I feel fine when they're signing off and probably maybe not leading the way, but like definitely a part of the discussion. And Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, said that he basically he did an interview where he said, like, we've talked Donald Trump out of like leaving the area and staying in the area. And I was like, okay, this is good. This is all good. I like that. I like the idea that like Theresa May and Emmanuel Macron are like, okay, this is what we're doing. And And he's like, okay, I'll go along with them. That's I'm happy with that scenario. But then Sarah Huckabee Sanders came out and said, McCrane doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, we're, we are still going to try to leave because his base is super mad about all this serious stuff. And I was like, oh, the, like the, the smallest amount of reassurance I had by their involvement was tampered. But as long as we're acting in conjunction with those other countries, I feel better about it. Still think that they need congressional authorization, but whatever. You know, a year ago, I tried to look at this action and ask myself, how would I feel about this if President Kasich ordered it mm. or President Romney or President McCain? And it led me to conclude that I would have trusted it and thought that a limited military strike to say do not use chemical weapons anymore was a good idea. I'm still so uncomfortable knowing that Assad is slaughtering his people and we aren't stopping it. I also don't know that we can stop it. I know that trying creates lots more problems. I heard, I don't like this level of discourse, but I heard all of the hot takes of, you know, too bad um, we don't care about poisoning our own citizens in Flint where the water is still not drinkable. And I don't like snark as our currency, so I, I don't love that. But But I understand why people are saying, wow, we're spending a lot of money on this and for what? Because we tried the warning shot of you cannot use chemical weapons. And Assad said, "Okay, I'll wait a year and do it again. And in the meantime, I'll kill lots of people with all kinds of conventional weapons. Mm -hmm. I've talked about how I think we can't be the world's police, but maybe we should be the world's firefighters, which leads me to maybe we need to help people evacuate. You know, maybe that's the call here. Less military action against the Assad regime, more allowing refugees into our country, uh, helping refugees get to other countries, sending medical aid. How long can that last? I think migration is one of the biggest and scariest and most difficult problems of our generation. I was just reading uh, James Kerchick's really excellent book called The End of Europe about how difficult migration into Germany has been for lots of reasons that don't have anything to do with racism. Certainly there's a component of that, but there are other reasons that migration is hard. I don't know what the answer is here. And I also am at a place where I can't ask the question, what if it were President Kasich or Romney or McCain? Because the very day that President Trump ordered these strikes, he was on Twitter calling James Comey a slime ball. Oof. 
And I want to say, well, it doesn't matter. You have to compartmentalize. But at some point, it does matter. Mm -hmm. I believe in congressional authorization, too. If I were sitting in Congress, I would have a really hard time authorizing this president to use military force. Right. I would have a really hard time creating anything that says, sitting here today, I want to give broad authority to the commander in chief. If he wants to be the commander in chief, he needs to act like a grown up. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does it say that, like, as an American, I feel more comfortable with military action from America? Because I know that the prime minister of Britain and the president of France are at the table. It's not good. Not good. It doesn't say anything good. No. Now, I will say I think the briefing from General Mattis and Dunford, here are two very competent people and agree or disagree with them on lots of things. I found myself comforted by their professionalism. And that's sad. Again, like that's the level. But um, especially when they were asked if the colleagues from France and Britain could comment. And Dunford said, you know, they were gracious enough to be here. They don't want to make statements that get out in front of their country's leadership. I thought that was so well handled. You know, Chad and I looked at each other and we're like, okay, the adults are in the room now. Mm -hmm. Even if we think the United States shouldn't be doing this, maybe it shouldn't. I don't know the answer to that question. I truly don't know what the right thing is. But I did at least feel like, okay, there are people in charge of this who have some maturity and some experience and some wisdom. But I'm just I'm struggling with this one. I don't know what the right or good or moral thing to do is. I mean, I'm comfortable saying it is the right and good and moral thing to do to attack a country using chemical weapons because we all agreed after World War One we weren't going to do this anymore. And yes, I know there is a long, hard history, um, especially during the Obama administration, of uh, saying that was a red line and not providing any consequences for crossing it. But it's never too late to do the right thing. And I think it is the right thing to attack a country using chemical weapons on their own people or on anybody else, because that's a good line that we need to keep others from crossing. My question is, are we prepared to go to war over that? I am. Because we have now said— I'm channeling my inner Hillary Clinton hawk today. Well— That might be the right thing. I don't know. But we've now tried the President Obama, John Kerry methodology of let's get rid of the chemical weapons. And Syria, in connection with Iran and Russia, have shown us that they're not willing to do that. And they'll lie about it Mm -hmm. to our faces. And we have tried the limited strike from President Trump last year, which I thought was the right thing to do. And he said, "Okay, we'll stop for a while. And now they've done it again. And Russia's response has been to say that we have, in an unprovoked way, created an act of aggression that violates international law. So are we willing to go to war over this? That, to me, is the question. I don't like regime change. We've learned a lot about how regime change is not a good idea. To me, that's the only answer in Syria. And then what? Because you, we are doing a good job with ISIS, but they're still there. Every time the United States gets into something like this, we create more terrorism. We create more propaganda for recruiting future terrorists. I just I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do is. But I agree with you. I don't want chemical weapons used in the world. It's the wrong. I don't know. I think this is such a hard problem. And I just think that that's a good thing about getting Congress engaged so that we can all talk about this as a country and have our legislators go on record with their best ideas about it. And at the same time, I cannot imagine giving this president new military authority. Yeah, that's the that's the 
added layer of complexity. Well, that would be a very important conversation to be having. Unfortunately, right now we're all I don't know I don't want to say distracted because that implies it's not important and I'm not saying that, but we there's another very intense conversation happening about Donald Trump's personal attorney Michael Cohen. Just keeps getting more bizarre with Michael Cohen. Uh, There's a federal court filing from the government that essentially argues that Michael Cohen has not been acting for President Trump as an attorney. And that's very interesting and something that I'm going to go into more depth talking about on Patreon. For now, the big news that we need to discuss is there is reporting that the Mueller team has found evidence that Michael Cohen, in fact, did have a meeting in Prague with someone from Russia Uh, in 2016, which would validate part of the Steele dossier, which is the document that has some very salacious details about President Trump, but essentially makes the case that the Trump campaign coordinated with Russians to swing the election in his favor. What do you make of this, Sarah? My favorite part is that (laughs) Donald Trump I guess through, I mean, I don't know who's his attorney anymore, but through an attorney said that he wants to review the material seized before federal investigators, which I thought was an interesting argument. It says the request underscores the high stakes in an ongoing legal battle in federal court in New York, where Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, is also fighting for a chance to get his review to review material seized as part of the incriminal investigation. So they all want to see. I mean, guys, they got the warrant and they raided because they were afraid of what you would do with the materials. Now, what makes you think they would give you the materials back to review them before the investigators looked into them? I mean, I don't it's not that I think they're going to give them the original copies or anything. I just think that this is a fascinating argument. I think that Trump is scared. Michael Cohen is scared. And if this news about Prague or anything else is any any indication, they have a very good reason to be scared. Also, I missed the tweet where he just took a picture of the front of his passport as if that proved anything, Michael Cohen, that he didn't go to Prague. But that's amazing. I love that. Here's my the just the front of my passport to prove that I didn't travel to another country. I'm sorry. It's not funny. It's very serious. It's just so ridiculous at certain points. I mean, the thing that I hate the most about this right now is it just creates so much pressure. Yep. Everything feels so tense. And it also creates a bunch of distraction. Honestly, Syria is the only issue we need as a country right now. Mm. And we have so many other ones and so many that are of this administration's making. And it's just it's really depressing. We interrupt this previously recorded episode of Pantsuit Politics because the news couldn't stay still. For 12 hours. For 12, six hours? How soon after we recorded this episode did the news break about Sean Hannity, Beth? I was in an appointment from 1.30 until about 2.45. When I went into my 1.30, Sean Hannity was not in the news. And when I came out, the news was nothing but Sean Hannity. Oh, man. So we knew that there was a hearing today before a federal judge involving Michael Cohen and the records seized during the raid on his office and hotel room, I believe it was. Yes. And they were arguing that because the items seized were privileged, attorney-client privileged, they shouldn't all be reviewed by federal investigators. And I believe the judge said something along the lines of, cool, who are your clients? (laughs) He had three clients? Is that it? Like total? He said that since 2017, he had worked for 10 people in total. For seven of those, he provided, and this is a quote from the New York Times, strategic advice and business consulting, which does not have a privilege attached to it. The other three 
comprised President Trump, Elliot Broidy, who you might remember. Oh, that's the, oh yeah, the fun, the guy with the payout, more payouts for more, the women. More payouts for abortions. women and the abortion. That's right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a third person. And in open court, the judge said, who's that? Basically. <laughs> and the lawyer said, we don't want to tell you because the person doesn't want us to. And the judge said, basically, don't care. Okay. Who is it? Mm-hmm. And the lawyer asked, can I hand it to you on a note? <laughs> <laughs> she said, you are going to say it in court. And he said, Sean Hannity. And according to the New York Times, there was an audible gasp in the courtroom. Amazing. Yeah, I don't even know what to say at this point. My favorite part of this is not even. Okay, so here's the thing. Sean Hannity is now saying that this was like a. Listen, I understand what he's talking about. I make this joke all the time. People are like, oh, you need to keep this to yourself. And I'm like, okay, give me a nickel. I'll be your attorney. And then I'll be attorney kind of privilege. I'm not even sure if that would hold up in court. It probably wouldn't. But he's saying it's like that. Like, oh, yeah, well, I just asked him for legal advice. And it was just, you know, I said, be my attorney, blah, blah, blah. If it was so informal and infrequent, then why were you requesting that they keep your name a secret? Here's what I've been considering since I heard this. I go out of my way to make sure everybody knows I am not their lawyer. Yeah, Nichols does that all the time. When you are someone's lawyer, a whole host of obligations are layered on that relationship, as they should be. It's a very big deal to be someone's lawyer. It conflicts you out of being other people's lawyer. It says that you owe some duties to that person to advise them properly. It exposes you to malpractice risk. Being someone's lawyer, not a thing to be taken lightly. And let me tell you something. You go to law school, everybody in your life thinks you're an expert on everything Mm -hmm. and wants you to advise them on things that you have no idea how to advise them on. And so every conversation for a good few years, especially with family members whom you don't see often, start like this. I will listen to you. I will give you an opinion. I am not being your lawyer. You Mm -hmm. should talk to someone who is your lawyer, but that person is not me. I cannot imagine being at Michael Cohen's situation in life, right, where he is in the middle of all kinds of very high-risk activities, just casually deciding To say, this is what's so bizarre. Sean Hannity is like, no, not my lawyer. And Michael Cohen is saying, yes, I am your lawyer. That is backwards. (laughs) That is backwards. It's usually the client who is saying, I thought you were my lawyer. And the lawyer is saying, no, 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 I wasn't. But here we have Michael Cohen saying, I promise I'm a real live lawyer. I keep thinking of Pinocchio. He's a real boy. You know, (laughs) I promise I'm your lawyer. And Sean Hannity's like, nah, we chatted about some real estate. Okay. And here's the other thing, though. So while I believe there are scenarios because I have used them in my own life where I'm like, ha ha, give me five cents and I'll be your lawyer. And then we have attorney client privilege. Like. It's often because people have, like, an innocuous legal question or really just maybe because they're telling me gossip they don't want me to share. Like, people ask attorneys, like, what you're, like those scenarios when they're like, can you give me some advice? It's because those attorneys have, like, a practice area in which they have expertise that would be worth something to someone else. 
it sounds like all Michael Cohen did was fix problems and pay off people. It's not like he was some, you know, blockbuster contracts attorney where someone would really need his advice. Also, Sean Hannity makes $28 million a year. Something tells me he probably has his own attorneys. Good ones, expensive ones, ones waiting in line to maybe become his attorney should those attorneys piss him off. So I don't understand why you would be asking him for advice at all in an informal setting. You clearly have lots of employees and lots of attorneys who would offer you advice. And this guy doesn't have any really expertise to give except for how to pay off people you've slept with. Is that the kind of problems you've had, Sean Hannity? Something tells me we're probably going to find out pretty soon. Well, I was going to say Michael Cohen definitely has an expertise. (laughs) I just think it doesn't have anything to do with drafting or case law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or being a lawyer, really. And there was some reporting this afternoon. I was listening in the car about how um, Sean Hannity hired Michael Cohen about the time that Bill Riley was losing sponsors. And that at the same time, it was believed that Sean Hannity was hiring private investigators as well. And the folks on MSNBC, and let me just say, they were having a heyday, right? I mean, you could see the popcorn through the radio. (laughs) And some of it, I want to say to my friends at MSNBC, who I do watch often, it was not responsible speculation. <laughs> but they were asking the question, well, would he have hired those private investigators through Michael Cohen so that privilege mm-hmm. attaches to them? I don't know. I don't know why he did anything with Michael Cohen or what he did. It does not surprise me at all that Donald Trump would say to Sean Hannity about a number of things. I know a guy. That sounds right. I believe that conversation happened. But why would Sean Hannity go, cool, I'll use him? That's what the part that doesn't make any sense to me, because you want to curry favor with Donald Trump? Yeah, let me make that make sense, because the New York Times has reported that over the past year, the first quarter of 2018, Sean Hannity gets 3.2 million viewers mm. on average, up from 1.8 in early 2016. That's why Sean Hannity would use Donald Trump's guy, because I think Donald Trump is the kind of guy who wants to say, I know a guy. And then you say, your guy must be the best guy ever. Right. Everything we know about Donald Trump to me supports a casual sharing of my guy among these two friends who are getting closer and closer and closer because it is the most profitable thing Sean Hannity's ever done in his Mm -hmm. life. Mm hmm. And here's the other thing. So we've talked about the relationship between a client and an attorney, between Hannity and Cohen, between Cohen and Trump and Trump and Hannity. But there's this other relationship, which is Sean Hannity and the viewer, (laughs) the viewing public, that I think is important. The fact that he was, and I use this term very loosely, reporting on this investigation of Michael Cohen and all these things while not disclosing this relationship is pretty ballsy. Some would say unethical. I'm just tired. I understand that Sean Hannity is not a reporter. He is not a journalist. I'm not sure what he is. I say that as someone, I'm not sure what I am either. You know, so like (laughs) no 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 criticism, but I do think 
sitting in front of an average of 3.2 million people with the graphic bulletin board connecting what he calls Mueller's mafia when he has this relationship with one of the key figures in the conversation about the Mueller investigation and other matters right now. Pretty ballsy. Yeah. If we want to describe it that way. I mean, because he does try to like. It's really something. I mean, I don't know how you say you're not a journalist when you try to have scoops. Watch in tonight. I mean, remember all that stuff he did about that poor Democratic staffer? What was his name? Seth? Oh, Seth Rich. Oh, my Yeah. Remember all that? He sure was portraying himself as like Mr. Truth Teller, town crier journalist then. You know, it's not like he just. Yeah, he's on. He's on it. He's out there finding the truth for everybody, except for he can't even tell the truth about his own relationships. You know, here is what I want to say about this, I think, after having stewed on it all day. Because I have come to the realization that Sean Hannity fills a void, right? Mm. People in life are not having conversations, and in swoops Sean Hannity to fill that void. No, no, no. I would like to edit that ever so slightly. People don't want to have conversations because conversation implies a given forth in which there might lead to disagreement or conflict, and people don't want that. They yes. want echoes, and that's yes. the void he feels. And I think it is more important than ever before for all outlets that deliver any kind of information to people and commentary to work really hard to find people who have different viewpoints who are going to be more responsible than Sean Hannity. Because this is so gross and it has gotten so out of hand. The other thing that I've been thinking about all day as this goes on is how, again, tenuous our relationship with the truth is right now. I just watched the first episode of Showtime's The Circus, the new season. They spent some time in Moscow in that episode. Oh, my goodness. Listening to the spokeswoman for Russia is chilling. Mm. And she says at one point, she insists that they did nothing in the elections. And then she goes, full O.J. Simpson style, but what if we had? (laughs) How different would that be than what America has done all over the world for centuries? Hmm. I mean, it's chilling. And I think that when you have seizure of records from a lawyer, a debate over whether a lawyer is really a lawyer... And then in they drag one of the conservative far right heroes to this mess. It gets even more dangerous. Vladimir Putin couldn't have written this better. So we'll leave it there on that cheery note and take you back to your regularly scheduled Fancy Politics (laughs) episode. Thank you so much to Dylan, our producer, for being very gracious about sending him files this late at night. Speaking of issues of one's own making, our governor has been in the news Mm. for similarly cringeworthy things. Not similarly. That's not fair. But cringeworthy statements, as you have undoubtedly heard, um, Governor Bevin remarked in the context of teachers protesting the treatment of their pensions that he guarantees a child was sexually molested Ugh. because no one was with that child during the day. Can I just say, like, I don't even like Matt Bevan. And my mom got this text message with, a, like, just typed out what he said. And she showed it to me. She's like, is this true? And I'm like, Mom, that's not true. Of course he didn't say that. Like, I assume. 
I just assume, like, no, of course he wouldn't say that. That's an absurd thing to say as a governor. As a person. He said as a it. human being. He said it. There's video of it. He has apologized. But he was like one of those, I'm sorry if you got your feelings hurt apologies. He said that he was misunderstood by some people and he genuinely hurt other people. That is the way I heard it. And I thought that this was a situation where the right thing to do would have just been to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that mm. and move on. But he didn't do that. He doesn't do that. Mm-mm. I think that Governor Bevin wants to be a smarter Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I think he wants to seize on all of the grievance and frustration and charisma of Trumpism and ride it to Washington, D.C. to increasingly get more powerful positions for himself. And perhaps there are some really good intentions in doing that as well. But at this point, Kentucky needs a governor who can bring lots of constituencies together around hard problems. And this was a just such an unforced and offensive and lowest not even lowest common denominator this just went to a place that is truly bizarre and unthinkable and i'm really sorry that he said it here's here's what i want to do i just want to sit down with matt bevin and say okay let me assume you were doing your best and the point you were trying to make is that because all these teachers are walking out and exercising their right to free speech, right to assembly, children will be left at home by single parents who can't who can't afford to, you know, find b- backup child care. Okay. First of all, you fundamentally misunderstand how sexual abuse otherwise works. It's not like opportunity knock on the door a kid's home, here's my chance. But putting that aside, Did you think that, like, shaming these teachers for who are already passionate and energized and incredibly upset at this pension conversation, like they were going to go, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't know who you were talking. I don't know who you were talking to and what you thought the effect was going to be of saying something like that. I just. Well, I think he's doing what is being done Um, In a lot of corners, unfortunately, of my party, which is deciding to win by inflammation. Mm. It's almost like the other side of any discussion. I mean, if you were in a conversation where you say my enemy is teachers, like you've gone astray, right? And I, I just I think he just thinks it doesn't matter as long as I'm beating up on whomever disagrees with me. That seems to be the whole strategy. And I don't think that is in the long term a winning strategy. And in the short term, I think he has seriously overplayed his hand on the budget and the pension Mm -hmm. in our state. It's just falling apart. And we are seeing the effects of that. It is absolutely falling apart with a Republican majority. It is falling apart, just like in Washington, D.C. You cannot pretend that you own this country Mm -hmm. and no one will stand up to you. It doesn't. This is that is not what America was built on. Yeah, you just can't you can't bully people like this. It's just it's bullying. It's it's shaming and bullying. There's no, you know, look, not to. I don't want to put Ronald Reagan up on a pedestal, but for all his faults. On the conservative side, 
Like, he did at least try to inspire people to their better angels occasionally. You know, like, there was some of that in with the rest of his, in my opinion, problematic ideology. Same with George W. Bush, compassionate conservatism. Like, you have to inspire people to their better angels. It can't just be shame, fear, shame, fear, shame, fear. Like, it just, it's not a long-term strategy. It just isn't. Or even from a more transactional perspective, a Bill Clinton understood that the other side isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So how do we compromise? How do we all work together? There have been some results of that that really anger Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I understand. But people aren't going anywhere. (laughs) Like, we do have to work together some. And I just think Governor Bevin has lost that perspective completely. Totally. The last thing that we want to talk about before we transition to our conversation with David Singleton, who is the executive director of the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, are the two really shocking incidents of racism that made headlines over the weekend. One involving Brennan Walker, a 14-year-old African-American boy who missed his school bus, tried to walk to school got lost, knocked on the door of a house in a subdivision, and was shot by someone who feared he was a burglar. Now, the the person who shot at him missed. Thank God. But that happened. And on Thursday morning, two black men, I could not find their names or I would share them with you, were arrested, fingerprinted, and photographed. For sitting in a Starbucks waiting to meet a real estate developer without having ordered. They were waiting for the person who was coming to meet them to order coffee. I can imagine why. I've done that a million times. Also, I've sat in many coffee shops and had one cup of coffee in a three or four hour span because that is what coffee shops are for, right? And the police were called. And These two incidents together, to me, tell a crushing story of where we are in America in 2018 on race. Okay, here's the first thing I want to say. America, meet me at the mic. Teenagers are not adults. Repeat that to yourself until you can internalize it on a deep personal level. Like a 14-year-old is a child no matter the color of their skin. I think we have a real problem in this country with wanting kids to be kids Until they do something we don't like, and then all of a sudden they magically transform into adults wholly and totally responsible for their choices. That's the first thing. That that just the Mark Zuckerberg is a is a kid and this kid is is an adult. Are you kidding me? Especially the color of their skin. The idea that you know, I just get so emotional thinking about that as the mother of boys. That we see black boys as adults and they're not. They're not. They're children. A 17-year-old black boy is a child just as much as my child. And it just it makes me so furious, not even just on an emotional level, like just on a scientific level. Like we all know the science behind our brains and how they develop. And like it's not like the color of your skin changes the developmental rate of your brain. Like I just – and this kid didn't even do – and I'm not even implying that like he didn't understand the consequences of his choices. Like – or anything like that. He didn't do anything wrong. He was just freaking lost. And what do we teach kids? Knock on the door and ask for help if you're lost. It just, it makes me so angry. I can't even see straight. And then with regards to the two guys in Starbucks, here's what really blows my mind about this. In the video, 
There are a solid, like, six police officers there. What the heck is going on? Like, something tells me that there are a lot of things happening in Philadelphia. In what universe does someone call the police department in Philadelphia, a major American city, and they're like, sure, cool, we don't have anything to do. We'll send six police officers to a Starbucks because two black men are sitting there without ordering coffee. I don't understand how the manager didn't get laughed off the phone. I'm so confused by this whole scenario. If I were one of the many, many people in America providing diversity and inclusion training, specifically implicit bias training, I would take this as a a warning that I need to shift from my non-threatening videos and slides where I ask people to read the word red when red is written in the color blue (laughs) and start with this video. Because I think we have tried to dress up our conversations about race to the point that makes everybody comfortable. Mm -hmm. We talk about bias and we say, oh, isn't it fascinating how our brains work? No, this is not fascinating. This is damaging. This is traumatizing. This actually kills people. Mm -hmm. And even though it is uncomfortable to talk about, we must address it and we must leave the conversations in which we address it with action items. Because you might really think it's fascinating to talk about how neural pathways work. But the more important thing is that you start doing something about those neural pathways. Mm -hmm. We can teach ourselves to do and think better. It's hard. It requires consciousness. We have to make it a priority. But I don't know how you look at these two stories on top of incident after incident of police shooting unarmed black men and as a white person not think I am responsible for how I view this. I am responsible for how I talk about it. I am responsible to sit here and do what you just did, Sarah. And contemplate how it would feel to me if I knew I couldn't tell my child to knock on someone's door and ask for directions. Or if I had to tell my child, if you get pulled over, here's how you must behave. If you don't, you might die in that interaction. We we have to do that because this is this is so beyond the pale, I think. And it and unfortunately, it's not uncommon. These are two incidents where no one was killed. Thank goodness. God. Well, and here's the thing. Here's what I think is so reflective in that video is that there are a couple white people who are like, what is going on? They didn't do anything. Like, they're mad. And But the two guys being arrested are, like, so calm and sort of it just breaks my heart, like, how sort of calm and just like, okay, well, this is happening. Like, they're not outraged. And that makes me even more outraged as a white person. Like, they're not even surprised this happened to them. That's what makes me so furious. Like, think about that. Think about how the white people are like, oh my God, why is this happening? This is outrageous. And the two black men being arrested for sitting in a Starbucks are like, all right, well, I guess I'll just get this over with. Like, that to me is the most depressing part of it. Like, they weren't even Surprise. That is what just is so damning about the current state of race relations in our country. Because, you know, I I 
can tap a sense of injustice. It does not. It's not. It's not. It's not very deep below the surface with me, and I just can't fathom what it must be like to be taught from sort of the second that you're conscious that you will not be treated fairly because of the color of your skin. Be careful. Like I, I really can't, I just cannot fathom. I have enough fear about my three boys growing up and being teenagers because you know what? Teenage boys, they're just, they make dumb choices. Accidents are like the number one cause of death. I think about it. I worry about it all the time. I don't ever want them to get driver's license. It makes me so anxiety ridden. And that to think of the added layer of straight up vomit inducing fear that would lay over top of that. If my three boys had brown skin is it's outrageous. It's outrageous. So one of our listeners sent us a heartfelt message about these two stories. Um, and Sam wrote, this is why I think it is so hard for people to hear you say we must embrace and give love and respect to those in our lives that may have racist tendencies. I hear you. I get it totally. But where do we draw the line? How much of a jump is it from loving a family member who says terribly racist things to that person someday shooting at a black child asking for directions? I don't know the answer. But what scares me is that the jump isn't that large. And that's why I have an almost physical reaction to hearing what I believe to be racist thoughts and manifestations. Totally understand. This is a super hard question. The only answer that I can share is, well, I guess I have two answers. One, I think that we should not become what we are criticizing. And I think that what racism is at its core is treating other human beings as though they are less than you are. And I think that Writing a person off because of their, them having racist tendencies is doing the same thing. I'm becoming what I don't want to become. The second reason, and I just don't think that's effective either. If it were effective, I would do it. If we could shame everybody into treating other people with respect. Oh, God, I wish we could. Then I would be on the shame train. I would love it. But it would make me so not happy, working. but it doesn't work. And this, the second reason is what we talked about when we had our othering conversation a few weeks ago. It hurts me in the process. Mm-hmm. It drags me down. It makes me unhappy. And I don't mean that in trite ways. I mean that in deeply spiritual ways. I think it makes me ineffective at everything that I do. I think if we are all to be better, which is what we're called to do here, right? What we're saying is let's be better. Let's not assume that our fellow Americans sitting at Starbucks doing nothing are here to rob us. Let's not assume that a child knocking on our door is here to do us harm. Let's just be better. And I think I have to be better in that process instead of demonizing other people for views, even the most abhorrent views to me. I, I just think we have to – it's it's Martin Luther King's darkness will not drive out darkness. That's how I feel about it. So here I thought a lot about this message. And the best way um, I can think through it is what if I was sitting across – the table from that couple who shot at that child, the woman who answered the door and the husband who fired the gun. Okay. So I hope that you never hear me say embrace in the like physically embrace, even sort of love and embrace. Cause those couple, that couple would not be getting a hug from me. Let me be abundantly clear about that. They wouldn't, this would not be a warm, warm meeting in which I'm hugging them and holding their hands and making them feel better about the fear they felt. Mm -mm, No. But love, to me, can also mean, it doesn't just mean 
sort of the the one way we think about it in America, which is, I love you, you're wonderful, I only praise you, we never do anything hard. Love and respect can also mean sitting across from that couple and letting them face the full emotional, physical, spiritual wrath of the consequences of the choices they made. I love my kids, and sometimes that means that they get to feel how angry I am that they suffer the consequences of their choices, that that, you know, like we, like I've said repeatedly, like justice doesn't require hate. It just doesn't. And so if I'm sitting across from that couple, then they listen and they hear and they see tears and they feel anger and they feel the full, like I said, wrath of the the righteous anger I feel thinking through what they put that child through. That's that is not that is does not require hatred. That does not require a lack of respect. But it also doesn't mean that I'm like discarding them as human beings, that I am making them out to be monsters, that I'm telling them they're human garbage, that they're not worth anything. It's just because I, I don't see the path forward from that. That doesn't I don't get anything from that. I want people to Know better and do better. That's not always on the table. I understand that. I understand that. But I want them to feel, if at all possible, the tiniest percentage flicker, however you want to describe it, of the pain they've caused. And when you shame a person, when you other a person, it's like you flip a switch in their brain and that is no longer available to them. When people are on the defensive, they're never going to access the pain they caused. They're never going to see the pain they caused. And that's because it's disconnected. Yes. Right? And that's it's what I because want. Because you've taken them out. Yes. And I don't want that. I want them to be fully plugged in to the pain they caused when they sh- shot at that 14 year old child. That's what I want. That's what you I want. You cause that pain because you are part of this web of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to remove you from that web. And so you're right. The word embrace is a is let's be clear about what we mean. It is we are all in this web still. Mm-hmm. And so you are accountable for the way that you impact that web. And I think that our language and the way we treat one another and the way we're sorting ourselves geographically and otherwise. We're, we're taking that web and making tinier webs. That's another reason I hate talking about red states and blue states and two Americas. No, we're impacting each other constantly. So let's be with that and talk about it. And that, again, is why I think we need to start stop soft selling what it means to have unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that enough now. Let's make it conscious. That is the point. And what happens next? And that is what we're going to spend some time talking with David Singleton about next. David is the executive director, as I said, of the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. We'll tell you more about that organization um, and his role in it. He's someone that I deeply respect and admire on a personal level, which I think you'll hear in our discussion. And I think that fits in uh, well with the conversation that we've been having. But first up, we're going to compliment the other side. Beth, who are you complimenting this week? I've complimented him for this specific reason before, but the events in Syria remind me again that Tim Kaine has been very consistently over the course of his year a person who wants Congress to take votes when we use our military force. And as I talked with Jason Baker about last week, 
you know, the fact that we ask people as young as 18 to be willing to die, but members of Congress are too afraid to go on the record with a vote Mm -hmm. makes me sick. And I think uh, Tim Kaine is someone who's been very serious about that for his entire career, and I appreciate it. I think mine fits with that. I am complimenting Tom Tillis, who's a Republican from North Carolina. He was also sort of very um, transparent and um, open about what are we really asking from our members of Congress and what does courage really mean? So he has introduced a bill that would allow a special counsel a 10-day window to fight a potential removal by the Trump administration and could see it could soon see a vote in the Judiciary Committee. So I think that's awesome. I think a Republican coming forward and saying that they're that doing a pro Mueller bill is a big deal. When he was asked about like sort of the base and the conservative critics um, who don't love this bill. He said, spare me. Courage is when you know you're going to do something that's going to anger your base. The same people who would criticize me for filing this bill would be absolutely angry if I wasn't pounding the table for this bill if we were dealing with Hillary Clinton. So spare me your righteous indignation. Good job, Tom Tillis. Way to be honest. Well, next up, we'll talk with David Singleton after a brief break. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. 
big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. So we are here today with David Singleton, the executive director of the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. I joined the board of OJPC in January because I love everything about this organization, which we will talk more about um, in our discussion with David. But David, thanks for being here. Thank you. And thank you for joining our board. So excited to have you. Well, thank you. So I want to just start off with the mission of the of OJPC. You talk about seeking fair, intelligent, redemptive justice. Can you tell everyone what you mean by those words, which I think are the most perfect words for an organizational mission? Well, well, our um, mission is to make our uh, criminal justice system work a lot better than it currently works. Um, it is not fair to so many people. Uh, it should be about redemption and rehabilitation, and it's often not. And it's not intelligent. I, I think for the most part, we've had um, a system that has been more focused on just locking people up, regardless of whether they really need to be in prison. And that's not smart. Um, we need to be smart in terms of how we are uh, using um, our scarce resources and warehousing people in prison for long periods of time when either they're not dangerous or they've served enough time is in none of our interest. And we need to recognize that people make mistakes and but should not be judged forever by the worst thing that they've done. So what we try and do at OJPC is, uh, what, what we do is we provide free representation to prisoners and uh, people who are coming out of prison. And maybe folks on the left are more focused on uh, the morality of locking so many people up, although you can't necessarily say that those those um, that that always holds, because there are plenty of folks on the left who, you know, elected offices who have been scared for so many years to talk about justice reform because they feel like they're going to be painted as soft on crime. But what I'm finding is that we've got this moment where you've got people across the political spectrum saying we need to do something about it. And that's a good moment because we've been able at OJPC to do a lot of justice reform work in our state. Um, and as you know, the legislature is controlled by Republicans. The governor is, is Republican. And yet we, we have been able to do some, some really good work. Can you share a little bit about that work regarding particularly addiction and the kinds of legislation that you would like to see? We need to make sure that low-level drug users are not in our prisons. Currently, we um, have uh, people uh, about, I don't know, about 10,000 people 
each year who are uh, low-level drug offenders. They're either coming back to prison on probation violations that don't have anything to do with new crimes being committed, but maybe they um, tested dirty for uh, drug use or they missed an appointment. Um, and so those folks need to be treated in the community. The problem is that they're, particularly in rural communities, there are not enough resources. And so one of the things that we're doing at OJPC, um, we, along with the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, which is um, a community organizing uh, group in, in, um, in Ohio that we've worked with before on issues, and an organization called the Alliance for Safety and Justice, we are putting on the ballot in the fall um, a measure to safely and substantially reduce the prison population. And it's going to focus on decarcerating those people serving low-level drug offenses um, who are uh, not violent and really need to be in the community getting treatment. And so we anticipate that this prison population will reduce about 10,000 each year because of this. And that money is going to be reinvested into drug treatment so that those folks in the rural communities that don't have treatment available will be able to get um, drug treatment. And there will also be money going from those savings into trauma recovery services. I think that is awesome. And it it struck me when I started to learn about some of these proposals that there really is a win-win here, right? There, There's not a downside of changing up this model. I imagine, Sarah, that it speaks to you to hear that conversation about rural communities as well, if you think about similar legislation that could be effective in Kentucky and lots of other states. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is very exciting to get rural interests and urban interests together working for criminal justice reform. We are way too divided in this country. A lot of that divide is the rural-urban divide, and um, those voices need to come together and find a way to get criminal justice reform work done, and we think we're going to do that with this ballot, ballot initiative. That's awesome. David, one of the most high-profile things that has happened for OJPC recently is its involvement in advocacy for Tyra Patterson. And this is really what led me to join the OJPC board. I heard you speak about this during the Leadership Northern Kentucky program that I was part of, and I have told people since that I, listening to you, I felt like I had been to church. Do you mind to give everyone as as abbreviated a version as does justice to the story of what what happened to Tyra Patterson and how OJPC has been involved. And, and I think that everyone will see what a microcosm for criminal justice reform this story is. Well, um, Tyra was convicted when she was 20 years old um, for uh, a murder and robbery that happened in Dayton. Um, the government's theory was that she was part of a group of five people who robbed a group of five young women who were in a car. Uh, and during that robbery, um, a 15-year-old girl, Michelle Lay, got murdered. And the government's theory was that Tyra was actively involved in a robbery and, actually, and grabbed a necklace from the neck of one of the victims during the robbery. And what made the case hard from our standpoint um, although there's a lot of evidence of her actual innocence, was that um, she had, under pressure from the police, um, confessed to grabbing a necklace from someone. Now, we maintain that was a false confession. Um, and uh, in fact, we now know, based on what 
um, one of the victims who's come forward, actually the sister of Michelle Lay, who got murdered, um, the sister's name's Holly. Holly's come forward to say Tyra had nothing to do with any of this. But what was tough about this case from Tyra's standpoint is that she had lawyers that didn't believe in her at trial. When Mm. she said, I falsely confessed, um, I need to testify. No, you shouldn't testify because you are um, from the ghetto. These white jurors aren't going to believe you. That's just horrible. When Tyra said, I actually called 911. I tried to stop this as it was going on. Um, when I got back to my apartment after hearing a gunshot, I called 911. The lawyers were like, well, we're not going to put the 911 call in um, to evidence. And it's like, why wouldn't you put that powerful evidence in? So she didn't get a defense. And not surprisingly, the jury convicted her. She got um, more time than the, sh- the actual shooter got. She got a 43-year-to-life sentence. The shooter got a 30-year sentence. Um, the shooter pled guilty. Tyra said, I'm innocent. I'm going to trial. And she got punished for mm. exercising her constitutional rights. So Tyra goes off to prison in 1995 with no hope whatsoever. She dropped out of school in the sixth grade. And she just set about transforming herself. She became educated. By the time I met her, she's very educated. And I got into the case reluctantly at at first because we're not the Innocence Project. Um, In fact, we sometimes joke tongue-in-cheek that we're the Guilty Project because we want to make sure that people who are in prison and irrespective of guilt or innocence are treated humanely and fairly. Um, But I, I... Finally, after two years of begging, I had a board member who said who kept begging me to go and meet Tyra. And I finally relented and I met her and she has this amazing spirit, but she also had this very powerful story. And as I investigated and investigated and investigated, I became convinced it was a wrongful conviction. She didn't know her co-defendants. All of her co-defendants passed polygraphs. Um, We had five different polygraph examiners. She, they all passed polygraphs. Um, Tyra passed two polygraphs, including by an FBI agent, a former FBI agent. Um, and then, you know, the 911 call, we found that. Um, the, the jurors who heard it for the first time, there were six jurors who were able to, to, to get to hear the 911 call. They were like, oh, my God, we never would have convicted her. Um, and then um, Holly Lay, the sister of Michelle, comes forward to say, Tyra had nothing to do with it. We told the police that night she wasn't involved. And the only reason we testified against her was the the police told us that she had confessed. Um, And as it turns out, she was under intense pressure. So the cut to the good news, the good news is after five years of working really, really hard for Tyra, we walked her out of prison on Christmas morning. Um, She still has a clemency petition pending. We're asking Governor Kasich to pardon her. Um, And one of the things I'm so proud about this case is that this was an effort of why it's so important to work across political aisle. Um, The key to getting Tyra out, not only was it the victim coming forward, but was having so many conservative politicians who answered our call. They went to go meet Tyra in prison and they saw her humanity and they became concerned about the conviction. And they went to the mat for her with the governor. Joe Dieters is one of those people, um, the Hamilton County prosecutor, who is t- really a hard-nosed prosecutor, tough on crime, 
conservative Republican, our former Attorney General, Jim Petro, um, Jean Schmidt, my former Congresswoman, who I used to just dog when she represented me. I talked about her being mean Jean, just like a lot of other people did. I love that woman now. She went to the mat for Tyra Patterson. So it's an example of working across the aisle and the right thing happened. And we're going to continue pressing for a pardon until we get one. Do you think that there is any increased understanding about false confessions in the general populace? I'm, I feel like there's been an effort to educate that this that people do confess to crimes they haven't committed. But I wonder how much you feel like it's permeated our entire culture. Yeah, I think it is permeate, permeating the culture. I, one one um, big nod to the Innocence Project, they've, they've exonerated nationally about 340 people um, with DNA. Um, so it's conclusive that they're innocent. And in 25% of those cases, there were false confessions. Wow. So that's one way. But, but you know, the Making a Murderer um, mm-hmm. series on Netflix, um, Brendan Dassey, um, that was a very powerful example of a false confession. Now, we'll see what happens. I mean, it, he may not be getting out because initially it looked like he was going to get out. And then now, now the, the courts have reversed it. The Court of Appeals reversed it there. Um, and we'll see if the Supreme Court takes the case. But the point about Brendan Dassey and making a murderer is that it it made it real to so many people that false confessions happen. And, you know, lots of us think, why would anybody ever confess? But it happens because people are under pressure. Police detectives are very good about exerting pressure um, to get people to confess. And in Tyra's case, for example, she was young. She was never been in trouble before. She was inexperienced with the justice system. And she thought naively that she was going to get to go home if she gave the detective what, what he wanted. wanted. So it happens. Well, let me ask you this. So it seems like we've had this first wave of sort of like you said, the Innocence Project, helping people understand um, the ways in which our criminal justice system really fails people. And it seems like you are sort of picking up on the second wave in which we we don't want to just talk about people who were convicted of crimes they didn't want to commit. They didn't commit. We want to talk about the ways in which our values as a culture are not exercised, even with those who did commit crimes. So where do you feel like the, the lack of understanding comes on the second wave where we're talking about, OK, everybody, we understand that we need to rethink it because there are innocent people in jail. But let's also rethink how we pe- we treat people who commit crimes. The real challenge and we found this challenge with Tyree, you know, even though her case was one of actual innocence, is that um, our system dehumanizes mm. uh, folks and we buy into it. Um, we think of uh, the people who serve time in prison. We call them prison uh, inmates. We call we refer to them by their prison numbers. Um, it's we don't see the humanity. And that was one of the reasons why it was so critical for folks, um, us to get folks to go meet Tyra, um, to basically to vouch for her humanity. It's sad that we had to do that, but we had to do that. The thing we saw is that even with respect to one of Tyra's co-defendants, Lashana Keeney, when elected officials went to go talk to her to to get Lashana's side of it in terms of Tyra not being involved, I saw a connection happen between the folks we brought in and Lashana. And there's no question Lashana's guilty. And one of the powerful moments that happened was when Shannon Jones, who used to be in the state Senate, um, 
went to see Lashana and they realized they were from the same high school. They went to the same high school. And during that interview of Lashana, um, Senator Jones looked at Shauna and said, how could we have turned out so differently given that we both went to the same school? And then Shauna told her story about how it wound up happening. And it was a really sad story. And it's my understanding, Senator Jones cried all the way home, not because she was concerned about um, Tyra's wrongful conviction, which she was, but because she got impacted by this connection to Lashana Keeney. So it's the absence of a connection that I think allows um, a the, the the vices of our system to continue to um, to thrive. And I'm determined to get as many people as possible who are willing to come into prison with me um, to meet people uh, who are serving time and very well, maybe guilty, to see their humanity. And, and let's just close the loop on this one point. The, the, the point I realized we had gotten through to the governor's office on Tyra was when they stopped referring to her as inmate Patterson and they started talking about her as Tyra. That's mm. when we knew that they saw her humanity. And we need to do that with people who are who are guilty as well so that we can start getting better reforms to happen. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. So our listeners won't be surprised by this because I often have an Oprah anecdote that's applicable in every situation. But one of my favorite moments in her 10th anniversary DVD collection, she talks about going to prison and meeting with women who had killed their children and an assorted of very horrific ways. And she meets with them and she talks with them. And one of the women start crying and says, you know, I didn't think that you would listen to us. I didn't think you'd want to talk to us. Everybody rejects us. And Oprah says, you dealt with your pain in your way, and I dealt with my pain in my way, but we are no different. And I think about that all the time. I think that that's just, you know, and no one's saying that that means everybody goes free. And sometimes in right. the ways that you dealt with your pain results in a risk to everyone else. And so we acknowledge your humanity and that you were maybe doing the best you could with that pain at that time. But as a result, you need to be removed from society. That can be a thing without removing someone's humanity. We were talking about this the other day on the show, and I said, you don't have to dehumanize someone to get justice, but you do have to dehumanize someone to be cruel. Yes, yes. And and the, and the only other point I want to follow up on is that I do agree that, that some people need to be removed for society, but then we got to ask for how long? Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of uh, men and women I've represented um, and try to get them out on parole after they've served, you know, 25 years, 30 years, maybe somebody went in when they were um, 16 or 17 and, you know, on a murder charge and now they're in their forties and they're different now. Mm -hmm. And um, their brains have matured. We all know about the brain science now, at least most of us are, are hearing more about that. Um, our brains aren't fully formed uh, particularly if we're talking about men until the mid mid twenties. And, and so when somebody's now 40, they don't pose the same risks that they posed when they were 16, 17, 18, 19. Right. So we have to also ask that question. Why are we locking up people for longer than um, we need to, in terms of keeping the community safe? And I think that's because we've bought into the fact or not the fact, but the belief that they are not human, mm -hmm. that they don't deserve the consideration and a second chance that we, each of us would want for our own family um, or for ourselves if we were in that situation. I'm wondering from a policy perspective, how we make the experience of being removed from society a redemptive one instead of a punitive one. Because the last time I toured a prison, it was clear to me that everything about this experience is designed to be punitive. That's all we have going on. So for the time, let's say we get to sentencing that's appropriate to the circumstances, 
that offers people an opportunity for redemption, what should their prison experience be that increases our chances that we get to a redemptive place? Yeah, I well, there are there are some good good aspects of the system. Um, I, I I would agree that um, overall it's it's very punitive. I think programming um, that is is really aimed at preparing someone to come home that needs to happen earlier. Um, like for example, if you're convicted of a life sentence and you're not gonna be um, coming up to the parole board anytime soon, your programming options are incredibly limited. And that in and of itself is dehumanizing. I mean, if you're telling people that they don't matter, that they don't get an opportunity to, 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 to work their brains and grow, then it's a much more miserable experience being locked up. And, um, I think it's doing a disservice to people as well. So I think that, that um, having more, ro- more more robust programming, um, you know, as soon as someone comes in, would be really really important to to making that be more rehabilitative and less punitive. Um, I wish that we could get uh, college. Um, degrees back for people who are locked up. And I understand the politics of that. I get it. I get that the college has become so expensive for, for all of us, all of our, uh, you know, those of us who have children, it's expensive. But when we're thinking about, do we want to create a situation where folks who are eventually going to come home and going to be our neighbors? I mean, 98% of folks in prison are coming home. Uh, do we want them to be well-educated neighbors or neighbors that that are not well-educated at all. And the other thing that we have to do, if, we are, if we're really serious about um, ending the revolving door of people coming in and out of prison, is we've got to change the way that we continue to punish people once they get home by shutting them out of opportunities for work based on the fact that they've got a criminal record. And in the state of Ohio, we have over 800 laws on the books that say you can't work in certain industries if you've got a criminal um, record. And that's just setting people up to commit crimes, to survive, and then send them back to prison. So those are all things that we have to do if we are serious about making our, our system redemptive. That's the first thing I learned about OJPC. Before I knew anything else, I knew that OJPC worked on a database to help public defenders understand when they accept plea agreements what opportunities are being foreclosed. I don't think any of us think about the fact that there are just random laws all over the place that affect your ability to become a hairdresser or an electrician or a plumber because you have some kind of minor plea agreement. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's it's so frustrating. I mean, you if you have a felony conviction in the state of Ohio, you could be denied a barber's license. Now, one thing you might learn when you're locked up is how to cut hair. And what sense does it make to shut someone out of that opportunity because they have a felony conviction? Um, it's mandatory in the state of Ohio that you can't get a license to open up your own construction firm if you have a felony conviction. 
what sense does that make, particularly if those are the skills that someone has and they want to start their own business? Because we all know that when you come out of prison or if you have a felony conviction, it's going to be tough, not impossible, but tough to get somebody to hire you. So why shouldn't we want someone to start their own construction company if they if they possibly could? So um, those are, I, I think sometimes our legislators don't really think things all the way through. It sounds good. Uh, maybe there's one example that they can point to where something bad happened, where somebody was licensed um, and they had a felony conviction. They were licensed to work in a certain industry. But I, I hope that we get legislators who are committed to seeing the big picture. And the big picture is, is if we all want community safety um, and also if we care about redemption, which I think we all do at some level, then we shouldn't be closing the doors of opportunity on people. We've got to open those opportunities up for folks. Um, and th that will make our, our communities better for everybody. It's so weird because Americans love redemption in a lot of ways, right? There's, there's no story that we enjoy more than the story of redemption. I just wonder if our tough on crime ideology that has been such a story for decades now is a result of us overestimating the power of deterrence and not realizing that because we over rely on deterrence, which I'm not sure works in any context, I'm, I'm struggling with coming up with an example where I think, yep, that law really keeps people from doing this crime. So we don't think about the experience of what happens after a crime is committed. You know, it could be over reliance on deterrence, but I really think it's 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 more it's more it, it comes back to the fact that we tend to view people who we don't know well, and maybe there's some um, you know differences in terms of our upbringing. We view them as other. I think that's really the issue. We we love redemption when it's about ourselves or our kids or our friends, we're willing to, to, to say that we should give people a second chance. But, you know, if we're in the suburbs and we're talking about people in the urban core, do we feel the same way necessarily? Um, I don't think so all the time. I'm not saying that's across the board, but I think it's easier to write off people who we think are different rather than finding that actually we're not different. We may have some different experiences, but that doesn't make us different. We're human beings. So I think it's the we need to find a way to de-otherize those people who we tend to write off. We need to see that we are connected and that we're all in this in this struggle together as human beings. And I think if we can do that, then we're going to be willing to be redemptive and we're going to be less willing to say, well, we need to do, you know, have a harsh sentence because it's going to deter. No, it's not going to deter. That's not what it's about. But that's an excuse that we use because we don't think that um, that uh, that folks in prison, by and large, are the same as us. And they are. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. When I came onto the board, you told us that what you want from your board members is the willingness to walk through fire. And I know that you do that all the time yourself. And so thank you for your work in the world and for being here with us today. And thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Beth, what are you thinking about outside politics this week? 
a bunch of different things. I have gotten so many messages from people who would love to do business coaching work with me um, in different formats. And so I've offered a new leadership class and I'm also going to start offering group coaching. So if you are interested in working with a small group of people, it makes it a little bit more affordable. Um, You can check out my website, bethsilvers.com. Sorry for the commercial, but I just find that um, it's so interesting to work with people who are listeners of the show. And that seems to be a really good fit for my business coaching. Also, we just watched Molly's Game. Have you seen it? No, is, is it good? I love her, but I'm, t- I'm, you know, I'm off Aaron Sorkin, so I was a little, I was a little hesitant. Well, see, it's Aaron Sorkin, but not political, so it's the best of all things. Okay, because it's just the rapid style speaking and sort of the dramatic story. I also read that he stayed closer to the source material than he usually does. That Molly Bloom hmm. herself consulted a lot on this movie. I mean, look. It's Aaron Sorkin doing what Aaron Sorkin does. It's Jessica Chastain doing exactly what she does. Yeah, but I love that. I'm here for that. And it's a really interesting story. I was telling Chad. So everybody knows by now that I have like oppressive wonderlust. I want to live all the places. I love change. Usually when I watch movies, I go through like a life and career style of wanderlust. I think, oh, I could be a nurse living in the Himalayas or something like that. I could be a firefighter. I could be whatever. I want nothing to do with running high stakes poker games. (laughs) This is a life that is not for me, but it made for a really fun movie. Well, I have been listening to lots of new music. I kind of gave my brain a little bit of a break. Sometimes I just keep it silent in the car, but I've been on a little bit of a podcast break. So first I listened to Casey Musgrave's new album. It's so good. I love her. I'll be honest. I don't love it as much as pageant material. It's a little less country, and I like really country Casey Musgraves, but it's really good. I talked about one of the songs, Wonder Woman, on The Nuanced Life and how I just like found myself crying halfway through. But the album, new album I've really been enjoying is the new Brandy Carlisle. Do you ever listen to Brandy Carlisle? Yes, I do. Oh, man. Did you listen to the song I sent you? I did listen to it. Oh, it's so good. It's called The Joke. Oh, man. Yeah, it's really, really good. Every song is so well written. And she has such an amazing just songwriting style where it's just like one line and you're like, Man, there is an entire universe wrapped up in that one line of that lyric. That I was really my reaction. Re- it was poetic. It was. It's so poetic. It's so poetic. This song um, is her. I think it's the first single from the album. She's been playing on the late shows. And there's two verses, and it's just sort of the second verse is like about um, she's, she's talking to a girl, and she said, I know it's your brother's world. And then she says, for a while longer. Oh, I just love that part so much. Gives me all the feelings. Um, so I've really, really been just enjoying listening to music in the car and at home, and particularly those two albums. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We will be back on Friday here to cover whatever takes place this week. On Wednesday, you can catch us on The Nuanced Life. Till then, keep it nuanced, y'all. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash pantsuitpolitics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics or Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. 
Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.